Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, before we pray, a couple of things to mention by way of announcements. First of all, there's a thing out on the front about the landmark decision related to uh, seminaries in the state of Texas. For those of you who don't know, the state of Texas has had a draconian policy that you can't use the term seminary, master of theology, bachelor of theology, doctor of theology by a school unless they are fully accredited and meet all the requirements of the state. And that was finally uh, knocked down by the Supreme Court in a case involving Tyndale Seminary. So that's out there. Plus a map and information about the baptism that will be this Sunday afternoon. Now this Sunday is going to be a banner Sunday. Number one, it's communion. Number two, we're going to have the keys to the to this uh, space, the property right next door over here that is uh, up for uh, lease right now that's available for us and that we'll be voting on at the congregational meeting that will be the next Sunday. So we're going to have the key Sunday. So immediately following the service Sunday morning, we'll open that space up and have a walkthrough so that everybody can see uh, what's involved over there. And then at 4 o'clock, will be the baptism at Grace Bible Church on Schroeder Road up just beyond uh, Highway 6 off of, two, uh, what is it? Yeah, 249. I still want to call it 149. Um, and then there'll be a reception following at the Carnes. Okay, there's prayer, ladies' prayer brunch this Saturday morning at what time? 10.30 here. And I think that's it. Did I leave anything out? That'll do it. Okay. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship and ready to uh, focus on the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together this evening to be encouraged and strengthened by your word. It is your word that builds strength into our spiritual life as God the Holy Spirit takes it, stores it in our soul, and uses it to build spiritual strength and brings it to our minds so that we can use it in application as we go through various tests throughout the day. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening, you'll help us to understand them better and come to a greater understanding of the panorama of your plan as revealed in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I knew there was another announcement. I put information up on the Dean Bible website last week regarding the trip to Israel next summer. That trip will involve uh, two components. There, Then you can go on one or the other. The first part will be about a six-day trip to, or to Turkey. That includes travel time, so it's about four and a half days in Turkey going to Istanbul and then the area around the uh, where John wrote Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, and uh, a couple of other New Testament sites in, in uh, Turkey. Then we'll go to Israel and have ten days in Israel. The reason I'm bringing that up is that the information on the cost and everything else and to make, secure a slot, and we're going to limit it to about 
uh, 40 this year, which will be about one bus, um, you need to send in your deposit if you're interested in going. And the reason I'm saying that is because we already have 17 people signed up. So um, just a little word to the wise. Okay, we are in Hebrews, and we're not going to spend much time in Hebrews, but just to remind you, if I can get there, where we are. There we go. Hebrews 7, verse 12, talking about the change in the priesthood. The argument that we find in Hebrews chapter 7 is that there's a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood, to the Aaronic high priesthood, and Jesus Christ as the Messiah fits into that as the fulfillment of the type of the royal priest, the Melchizedekian high priest. This is indicated by David's uh, prophecy, as it were, in Psalm 110, and that he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. So the priesthood changes. And in verse 12, we read this sentence, that the priesthood being changed, metatithemi, indicating a change of place or condition, uh, of necessity, and the word there is, uh, and then we have the, another word for change, uh, metathesis, which is a cognate of the, of the, of the uh, verb, of necessity, that is, out of the compelling force or logic of the fact that uh, the priesthood is changing, there's also a change of the law. Now, that's a really great verse that has an embedded doctrine in it that is extremely important and probably overlooked a lot just because you, you tend to read past it very quickly, and that is that there is a change of law and a change of priesthood, and the priesthood relates to the administration of the, the uh, spiritual life in the, among the Jews in Israel under the Mosaic law. So it indicates that there's this something drastic changes between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. Now, last time I introduced the doctrine, which is related to dispensationalism, trying to answer the question in a somewhat abbreviated sense. I have a longer series out there on dispensations and covenants. Uh, I think it's called God's Plan for the Ages. But here I'm just going to try to give us a little bird's eye view of what's involved in dispensation so we know what we're talking about. And a lot of people don't really know the technical terminology here, even though some people have heard dispensational teaching in relationship to perhaps the rapture or their pro-Israel. They believe God still has a future plan for Israel, something along that lines. And I remember talking to a friend a few years ago, and uh, this individual was very involved in a denominational church and thought they knew a tremendous amount about the Bible. And so something came up, and I started rattling on, on dispensations like they knew what I was talking about. And they, even though this was an individual whose uh, siblings had gone to seminary and had gone on the mission field and had this family environment with all of this advanced study in it, this individual who was in her 50s at the time had never heard the word dispensations or dispensationalism. And that's just a real tragedy today. It's, it's the dumbing down of the church and if you dumb down your vocabulary, you dumb down your ability to think and your ability to really uh, perceive what's going on in the Scriptures. That's one problem, because this individual had been taught a, a sort of popular view of, of dispensational truth down through the years. But on the other hand, you also have among a lot of groups, a lot of Christian, a lot of denominations, an attack against dispensationalism. And part of that is funneled by ignorance. Uh, several years ago, there was a critique written of dispensationalism written by a Reformed theologian who had a, a lot of respect by the name of John Gerstner, and he, he basically set up a series of straw man arguments and then knocked them down. A straw man argument is when you misrepresent the opponent's view, and then it's real easy to discredit him. And he, he, here's this world-class scholar, a recognized world-class theologian who, who 
he can have his honest disagreements with dispensational theology, but he just distorted and misrepresented it. And unfortunately, a lot of people have that view of what dispensationalism is. And so I thought it was important just to take a little time to go through and, uh, and explain exactly what dispensationalism is. Dr. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer was a founder and uh, professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, used to comment that if you were not going to Israel to sacrifice a lamb on Passover or to sacrifice a burnt offering whenever you needed to, then you're a dispensationalist because you recognize that certain things have ended and also and certain things have changed. But one of the kind of interesting or subtle points that you run into in this debate is that there are, some, there are people, and everybody but dispensationalists are this way, as I pointed out last time, that believe that if something is stated in the Old Testament that it automatically continues throughout uh, all of the rest of uh, the history of salvation and on into the church age. Whereas we would say that unless something was repeated or restated in the New Testament, then it had only a temporary life in the Old Testament. And that is something we're really going to get into more and more at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. So this is a good place to kind of stop and do this little brief overview of dispensationalism because dispensationalism isn't saying that God changes everything. We believe there are certain things that continue the same. Salvation is always by faith alone in Christ alone. However, in the Old Testament, the understanding of just exactly who Christ is is not as clear as it is today. For example, from uh, Adam to Abraham, the Messiah would have been thought of in terms of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent on the head, but the serpent would bruise him on the heel. And then with Abraham, there's a little more clarification that the seed is going to come and the, and the one who will bring worldwide blessing will come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and then, and then Jacob. And then you come to the Davidic covenant in, in 2 Samuel 7 and you get clarification that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. So as, as the, Centuries went by, people in the Old Testament got a clearer and clearer understanding of things about the Messiah until finally come to passages like Isaiah 7.14 that, Behold, the virgin, it says in the Hebrew, not a virgin as most English translations have it, but the definite article there indicates that it's talking about an understood virgin, going back to the seed of the woman, that the virgin will conceive and bear a child who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And you have a real tight understanding that this is going to be the incarnate God, uh, just because his name indicates that. So there's a tighter and tighter understanding of the in, in this progress of revelation. So that's very important in dispensationalism. Well, last time I pointed out, just by way of review, a couple of things, that... Um, Dispensations deals with time and ages. And we just talked about some of the key words that you find in the Bible, such as seasons, based on the Greek word kairos, which indicates a broad expanse of time, as opposed to a narrower expanse of time. I think that you have ages which are broad and dispensations which are narrow, and that will be clear by the time we finish this evening. You also have the term ion for age, and you have an age of Gentiles between Adam and Noah. I mean, Adam and Abraham. No Jews. It's all, but you have three dispensations because there's modifications of the original creation covenant, first in Genesis 3, then again with the Noahic covenant, and then there's a major shift that takes place with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So you have ages and you have dispensations. The concept of dispensation comes from the noun oikonomos, which is where we get our word economy. You can hear how they sound very similar, and it emphasizes the idea of stewardship or administration and the idea that God administers his plan differently in different ages. There are certain things that stay the same, but there are other things that are different, and it's important to indicate that. 
and that's part of dispensation. So we define dispensation as a distinct and identifiable. That means it's going to have, each dispensation has specific characteristics. We'll get into that later on. This is just up front. A distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purpose for human history. There's progress. Everything's not the same. As part of this, we recognize three key elements that I pointed out last time. First of all, a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture. Secondly, that leads us to an understanding that God has a distinct plan for Israel and for the church. The Israel isn't replaced by the church, but Israel is temporarily set aside, and God is working through a new body that was not revealed in the Old Testament. The term mystery will show up, and that term mystery indicates a previously unrevealed uh, doctrine. So it's, it's a mystery not because it's a whodunit, and you've got to figure out a riddle, but it's a mystery because it's unrevealed information. And so the church wasn't revealed. Why not? Because if Jesus is going to come and make a legitimate offer to Israel, and they know that they're going to fail and somebody else is going to come along, then it's not much of a legitimate offer. So there's a potentiality in there that's really interesting to think about. Jesus came and gave a legitimate offer to Israel that if they would accept him as Messiah, the kingdom would come right then and there. But at the same time, he knew they wouldn't, but it's still a legitimate offer. And he knew that they were going to be temporarily set aside for a new group called the church in which there would be neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave. In other words, ethnicity wasn't going to be an issue in the church age like it was in the Old Testament. And sex was an issue, whether you were male or female was an issue in the Old Testament because only males could come into the presence of God. But in the New Testament, that doesn't matter, neither male nor female, bond or slave. In the Old Testament, only a free man could come into the presence of God in the temple. But in the New Testament, uh, your economic status or social status is not an issue in the, new, in, the, uh, in the church age, in the body. And then there's that promise, wonderful promise from uh, Paul in Romans chapter 11 that eventually Israel will turn back to God, call upon the Messiah, and all Israel will be saved. So Israel isn't permanently set aside in God's plan. It's only, it's only temporary. Now, that's really important to understand that distinction between Israel and the church because otherwise you end up, when you read Scripture and interpret it, read it for yourself, try to figure out what it means for you. If you don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church, it's like reading your neighbor's bills, reading your neighbor's mail, uh, thinking his mortgage is your mortgage. You're you're not understanding to whom a passage is addressed or written or to whom a requirement is is ex- of whom a requirement is expected. And so that's what happens. People come along and they think, well, the Ten Commandments is still for today. No, you're reading somebody else's mail. That's a contract with somebody else, not a contract with the church, not a covenant with the church is the biblical terminology. So it's important to understand uh, those distinctions when interpreting Scripture. So from there I pointed out that in the English, the word dispensation means to weigh out or dispense. And then once again, it's the, that is part of this idea of administration. Uh, it's the act of administering or ordering something, dealing out something or distributing something, or the act of administering or dispensing with some requirement. So at the core of the semantic meaning, that's technical language for Basically, what this word means is that there's a requirement. It it, it includes within its meaning some sort of obligation, responsibility, or expectation from someone. It's management, but there's responsibility and accountability in relationship to something. So that's all bound up in the idea of, of a dispensation. And we see in Scripture that there are certain passages that make reference to these things. For example, Ephesians 1.10 talks about the fact that uh, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Well, that's not now. It's not in the past. It's in the future. So that indicates 
uh, one division of human history. Then in Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, Paul talks about his responsibility that he was given the uh, grace to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to and see, that shows a difference because in the Old Testament, their, their focus wasn't to go out to the Gentiles, but to be a light or a beacon that the Gentiles would come to. So there's a, there's a definite shift or distinction. Paul goes on to say he is to bring light, uh, and he is to bring to light what is the administration, the economia, that's our word, for dispensation, and in fact, the old King James translated it dispensation, to bring to light what is the dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that's a reference to the present church age. It's been a mystery in the Old Testament, but now it's being brought to light. And then in Ephesians, uh, let me see, I have Ephesians 1.10 in there twice, Ephesians 3.2 talks about the fact that if indeed you have heard of the stewardship, there's our word again, oikonomia, I heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. That's a reference to the present present church age. Colossians 1.25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. In verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generation. So all of this indicates that within the scripture itself there's a recognition of these different administrations. That God administers history with a little bit different obligations, responsibilities uh, in different times. Then we begin to look at definitions. Now I think we stopped right about here if I'm not mistaken. C.I. Schofield, who uh, edited the Schofield Reference Bible, was one of the great Bible teachers that came out of the late 19th century. He was a decorated Confederate uh, war hero, but he, after the war he decided to find the solutions to life in a bottle rather than uh, somewhere else, and he was a drunk for a number of years, and then he finally he was a lawyer as well. Not that those two go together. I'm not making no lawyer jokes here. But he, he was a lawyer. It's interesting how many theologians were lawyers. Darby, who was the first to really organize and categorize uh, Scripture, began as a lawyer. Others began as lawyers. Calvin was a lawyer. Uh, many, the, many theologians down through history have, have come out of the legal profession. It's that same kind of analysis that appeals, uh, appeals to them. But Schofield uh, was part of that whole Bible teaching milieu of the Prophecy Bible Conferences, Niagara Bible Conferences, the Northampton Bible Conference that uh, Dwight Moody had up in uh, Massachusetts. And he uh, was very instrumental and edited and produced the Schofield Reference Bible, which came out in the early 20th century and has influenced hundreds of thousands, millions of people in, to understand dispensationalism. His protege was a young man, a young musical evangelist by the name of Lewis Berry Chafer. And one day he told Chafer, he said, Lewis, you might have something good to, you might make a passable teacher someday if you just had something to say. And so from that point on, Chafer began to study at his mentor's knee. Eventually, Schofield became pastor of a congregational church in Dallas, Texas, that is now known as Schofield Memorial Church. Another dispensationalist from the early 20th century, well, I didn't read the quote, did I? Schofield said, A dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. That's a good, tight definition. It indicates that it's a period of time, although as I pointed out last time, dispensation indicates the administration. Other words indicate a time frame. It's a period of time during which man is tested. There's accountability for something, and that something is given by way of a specific revelation. So there's specific change of information that takes place, and that's very important. Uh, dispensation isn't based on uh, other factors of history or theology. 
There is a revelation from God that God is going to function a little differently toward people and require them to do things a little differently. So you look for those times when God is revealing something new in how he is going to work with the human race. Graham Scroggie uh, defined dispensation this way. He said, the word oikonomia bears one significance and means an administration, whether of a house or a property of a state or a, a nation, or as in the present study, the administration of the human race or any part of it at any given time, just as a parent would govern his household in different ways. Now, the reason he uses that illustration is because the word oikonomia comes from two Greek words, oikos meaning house, and namas meaning law. So house law. When you were three years old, your parents had different rules for running the house and how you would uh, obey them than when you were 13 and when you were 18. So the fact that a household, and some of those rules stayed the same, and the fact that a household changes the way it administers those in the household doesn't imply inconsistency or that you're saying that God changes or any of the other silly notions that people accuse dispensationalists of. He goes on to say that just as a parent would govern his household in different ways according to varying necessity, yet ever for one good end, so God has at different times dealt with men in different ways according to the necessity of the case, but throughout for one grand end. And I pointed out last time that the overall purpose of God within dispensational theology is the glory of God. Dispensationalism is usually juxtaposed to what is called today replacement theology. And by replacement they mean Israel is replaced by the church in God's plan so that the promises and the covenants that were originally given by God to the Jews in the Old Testament is now given to the church and the church becomes the heir of the promises to Israel, and national ethnic Israel is no longer, no longer relevant, no longer significant for the plan of God. While that doesn't necessitate saying that they are anti-Semitic, it does provide the soil within which anti-Semitism has often sprung, especially during the... Middle Ages, when amillennialism dominated the church, Jews are no longer significant or important. God has no plan or future for Israel. And so, therefore, uh, the Jews were maltreated many times in Europe. They were run out of England for several centuries. They were uh, expelled from Spain in 1492 and pushed around different places in Europe throughout much of that time until, uh, interestingly enough, they found a a place of rest in the United States for the most part. And even the colonies were very open to uh, Jews coming and settling in America. And it wasn't until they established their own nation, they knew that no matter what would happen, if there was another Holocaust, they would have a place of safety uh, where they could flee. So that issue of Israel is very, very important. Uh, and it's important not because... It's a system that says so. It's important because that's what the Bible says. Now, Charles Ryrie, who was head of the theology department at Dallas Seminary when I was there, has written a, a classic work, a good work that uh, is, is basic in some senses, but uh, very good analysis in other, uh, other senses, called dispensationalism. And he defines a dispensation as a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. So he spend, puts less of an emphasis on time, which is what the word dispensation really uh, does emphasize more, the administration aspect than the time aspect, but emphasizes the, it's the outworking of God's purpose. And it's distinguishable. That means there's distinguishing marks or characteristics, so you can definitely tell when one begins and another ends. Around 2000, I was asked to write the article for the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible on dispensationalism, and I tried to pull several different ideas together 
uh, I wrote that a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration. Pick that up from Dr. Ryrie. A distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A closely connected but not interchangeable word is age. They're not identical. They're not synonymous. An age can be broader than a dispensation. It uh, introduces the time element. God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages. That's a key word, sequential. It's, they're related, and one builds on the other so that there's advance in knowledge, there's advance in information, there's advance in revelation. Sequential stages of his administration determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in human history. See, it's very important to understand this idea of progress of revelation. Failure to do so crops up in the most interesting places. I go on to say that each administrative period is characterized by revelation, specific responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, failure to pass the test, and God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. Five things. And that, that pretty much goes along with how uh, Dr. Schofield uh, set things up. I think that for the most part, Schofield had a very workable, uh, workable understanding of dispensations. So what are we saying? First of all, that these distinct elements are from the viewpoint of God, not from the viewpoint of man. It's theocentric, not man-centered. God-centered, not man-centered. That we look at these in terms of how God, what God, how and what God reveals. Second, there is a time when one ends and another begins. There may be transition period in there uh, as, as your one's fading out and the other's beginning like you had in the book of Acts. This is a problem that charismatics have is they don't understand the transitional nature of the book of Acts. That at the beginning of the book of Acts, when Peter is preaching in Acts 2 and again in Acts 3, there is still a holdout. Really, technically, up until 70 A.D., there is still the possibility that the Jews can repent and accept Jesus as Messiah, and the millennium will come because they're still in the land and the temple's still there. But in another sense, they've already forfeited that by their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, but God in his grace still holds out that option. Peter says in Acts 3, to turn to Jesus and accept the, t- and the times of refreshing, which is a term for the kingdom, the times of refreshing will come. So there's a there's this uh, a transition period there, but it's still clear that something is different. And on the day of Pentecost, in approximately 33, the Holy Spirit descended. Individuals who are believers in Christ are baptized into the body of Christ, were filled with the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, and that never happened before. And it's unique to this age. So it's very clear that that's the demarcation line. There's some overlap. I always have fun thinking, what would you do if you were a Jew and you were an Old Testament saint and you lived in Rome and you died in 45 A.D. before the gospel got to Rome? Are you a member of the church or are you Old Testament Israel? You're still Old Testament Israel. See, there's that transition nature there. It took time for the gospel to get around. Uh, third point is that this emphasizes the divine administration of history. History isn't, as Henry Ford said one time, one damn thing after another. It is an orderly, pro- guided progression of events that's the outworking of God's plan. It's not just a bunch of chaos. God is moving history, and, and he's doing certain things and teaching certain things in each one of these dispensations because they they manifest different characteristics and qualities. In that period from Adam to Noah, God's presence is still at Eden. You could could take, Adam could take his great-grandchildren and his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren down to see the cherub standing there with the flaming sword guarding the Garden of Eden and say, see, God lives in there. Ever think about that? 
and they could see the angels, they, and, 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 and human beings could see the demons. The sons of God were not invisible when they were cohabiting with the daughters of men in Genesis 6. Now, after the Noahic flood, you, you don't have this. The angels are, are not visible. They're not operating on, a, on the planet like in a visible, overt manner like they were before the flood. Then you have this mass of demon activity at the time of Christ, and then it sort of fades out, and a lot of people want to think it continues. There's still demonic activity, of course, but not quite in the same way because the Messiah is not here. It's really interesting. You don't have... You have very little reference to demons in the Old Testament. No demon possession, nothing like that. Anywhere in the Old Testament, all of a sudden it just explodes on the scene in the Gospels, and then you have a little bit hangover when you get into Acts, and then the epistles don't even mention it. Not one mention of demon possession in the epistles. I wonder why that is. New Revelation designates the shift from one dispensation to another. That's why I come back to saying that it's the covenants that indicate the, the movement. God reveals to man in the Garden of Eden what his role and responsibility is. He's to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. He's to guard and keep the garden, and he is to uh, uh, the wife is to be a helper to the husband, and they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they are not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happens? They disobey God, and all that, all that has to be modified. And then you go through another period of time, and then there's another worldwide cataclysm and judgment with the Noahic flood, and God comes back and has to restate each of those principles again. They're still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but now there's going to be other characteristic differences on the planet, and God gives a new set of stipulations. But man disobeys, you have the Tower of Babel, and then God decides, well, the heck with the whole human race, I'm only, only going to work through one man and his descendants. And then you have the Abrahamic covenants. And so new revelation comes. So each time you have new revelation in the form of a legal contract, the dispensation shifts. And when they do, some things remain the same, some things change. For example, you're still saved by faith alone in Christ alone. God provides a solution. Your understanding of Christ and who he is changes or modifies, clarifies, gets tighter in focus as you go down through the ages. But it, you're not saved by works in the Old Testament. You're not saved by the law. You're not saved by morality. You're not saved by ritual any more than you are in the New Testament. You're saved by believing the promise. In the Old Testament, you look forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Now we look back to the fulfillment of the promise. So each dispensation has its own responsibilities and tests, and that's indicated by change and expansion of revelation. And then, last but not least, each successive stage moves God's plan closer to conclusion. When it's all said and done, I think God's going to look back and say, see, in each one of these dispensations, we had conditions and circumstances that pretty much covered every possible condition and circumstance. Man failed in every one of them when he tried to do it on his own. You can't come up with another way of possibly doing it. And what God demonstrates through all of history is there's only one way, and that's God's way, and you have to be dependent upon God. Nothing else works. So how do we know when a new dispensation begins? That's the key that's a key question. And that comes to the idea of a covenant. Did I miss a slide? No. Okay, here's a quote from another very good dispensationalist, not an American dispensationalist, but a German dispensationalist by the name of Eric Sauer. Wrote several books, The Dawn of Redemption, uh, The King of the Earth. Uh, this was the first theologian I was ever acquainted, acquainted with. Um, the uh, pastor of the church where my parents were going when I was really little recommended these books to my dad to read. And he bought The King of the Earth and read that, and I think I read it when I was in junior high. Excellent, uh, bo excellent book, and he, but he's a European dispensationalist, so he's a little different from the flow of dispensational thought that occurred in America. And Eric Sauer says, quote, a new period 
always begins only when from the side of God, notice these guys are all theocentric. This isn't a man-centered theology. Begins only when from the side of God a change is introduced in the compositions of the principles valid up to that time. What's it one word to describe that when a change, when a change is introduced in the composition of the principles valid up to that time? What, what is one word you'd use to summarize that? Revelation. New revelation. He says, number one, there's a continuation of certain ordinances valid until then. Some things continue the same. Second, he says, there's an annulment of other regulations that were valid up to that point. Some things change, some things stay the same. And he says, thirdly, there's a fresh introduction of new principles not before valid. That's why you can say that, see, you don't have the indwelling of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, or filling of the Spirit in the Old Testament. When you read about the Holy Spirit interacting with Old Testament saints, do not make the mistake of reading into that the same behavior he has in the church age, because it's different. It was for a different purpose. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon men like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, not for the purpose of their spiritual life or spiritual growth, but in order to give them military capability to defeat the enemies of Israel. He came upon the uh, the craftsmen of the tabernacle not to give them spiritual life or greater fellowship with God, but in order to give them skill in in, in making and constructing uh, the jewelry and the, all the woodwork in the in the tabernacle. The work of the Holy Spirit was designed to promote the administration of Israel in the Old Testament, and there, I figured it up one time. There are fewer. You can't really say for sure because there's some prophets that we just we don't know, and so you have to. There's only about 20 named people in the Old Testament that are filled with the Spirit, but I'll be generous and say a hundred. Out of all those centuries, you didn't have more than a hundred people have any kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and that certainly can't be normative at all because there were thousands, tens of thousands of Old Testament saints. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in his book, uh, summarizes it this way. His book is called, uh, what's that T-shirt Bruce always wears? Footsteps of the Messiah. See, you can't forget it. He's got 20 T-shirts. They all say the same thing. (laughs) From God's viewpoint, a dispensation is an administration. From man's viewpoint, a dispensation is a responsibility. From the viewpoint of progressive revelation, a dispensation is a stage in it. That is a stage within the progress of revelation. Okay, from God's viewpoint, a dispensation is an administration. From man's viewpoint, a dispensation is a responsibility. And from the viewpoint of progressive revelation... A dispensation is a stage in it. So we have to, and then I put this in just to give you a little bit of an idea. This comes out of Ryrie's book, Dispensationalism, and gives you some different breakdowns of dispensations from different dispensationalists. Now, one thing I want to point out on that is because some people think, oh, you know, to be a dispensationalist, you have to have, you have, to have seven dispensations. See, that's a good biblical number of, full, of, of fullness, right? Seven. So we have to have seven dispensations. Well, some people have four dispensations. Some people have eight dispensations. The number of dispensations isn't relevant to whether or not you're a dispensationalist. Dallas Seminary only mentions three dispensations in their doctrinal statement. The dispensation before the current time, the dispensation of the, of the mystery today, and the dispensation of fullness of times in the future. Now, Pierre Poiret was a uh, dispensationalist in the 17th century, and he had six dispensations, creation to the flood, the flood to Moses, Moses to the prophets, the prophets to Christ. Then he looked at the church age in, in, as, as the period of manhood and old age, used a maturity model, and then the millennial kingdom was called the renovation of all things. 
Isaac Watts, the hymnist who wrote Joy to the World, is a premillennialist, and he breaks down, and he has an early dispensational type breakdown, and he breaks it down as an age of innocency before the fall, then the Adamical age from the fall to the flood, the Noahical period from Noah to Abraham, the Abrahamic period up to Moses, then the Mosaical period, and then just what he calls the Christian period. It doesn't break the church age down and the millennial kingdom down too much, although he was premillennial. Now, the first consistent dispensational theologian was an Irishman by the name of John Nelson Darby. And uh, Darby was uh, originally trained as a lawyer, then he went into uh, the clergy, and he was in the Anglican Church and broke away from the Anglican Church because he didn't like their ecclesiology. They were a cold dead church, in his opinion, for many reasons, and for many reasons he was right. And and he also came over to the United States and taught a lot in the 19th century and influenced a vast number of people because of his, his biblical teaching. But it wasn't original with him. He just systematized it. You'll find a lot of people that say, well, how can you believe in a pre-trib rapture? Darby invented that. Nobody believed in that before Darby. Well, there are at least three different evidences that they've discovered in just the last 15 years of people who... In church history, who held to the disappearance of the church prior to the tribulation. And one goes back to a document called Pseudo Ephraim. That's who the writer was called because he took the pseudonym of Ephraim. We don't know who the actual author was. And he indicates that the church goes up before the time of God's wrath. Then there's a, a Baptist, I don't remember his name. Uh, Baptist uh, founder, I know not founder, but president of, of um, well, the name escapes me, that, that extremely, it's one of the most liberal universities in the country in Providence, Rhode Island, Brown. Brown, uh, Brown University, the president of Brown University was a Baptist in the 1750s, and he held, wrote a docu- document that wasn't published until after he died, his theology, and he was held to a pre-trib rapture, and then uh, there was a, another evidence that came up kind of a, on the, a reversal. There was a document that was discovered written in uh, the Mar- Maryland colony in the late 1700s that was refuting a pre-tribulation rapture, which means somebody had to be teaching. And then I was talking to Tommy the other day, and Tommy said they found some other. He didn't tell me what it was, but they, they, they think they've got another. Uh, they've discovered another early writing that indicates a pre-trib rapture. So this didn't, Darby just systematizes this. Well, James Hall Brooks was a uh, Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis in the late 19th century, and he wrote quite a bit. He broke it down this way. He said you have the period of Eden, which we uh, Schofield called innocence, then the antediluvian period from Adam to Noah, then the patriarchal period from Noah to Moses, then the Mosaic period up to the time of Christ. Then he breaks out a separate dispensation for the, for the time of Christ, which he called the Messianic dispensation. And I think he had a point there because there are certain distinguishing characteristics that are unique to Christ's presence on the earth. The Jews weren't required to pay attention to the law anymore. They've got a new message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are other aspects that are unique to Christ's time on the earth. And then he he referred to the church age as the age of the Holy Ghost and then the millennial age. Well, James Hall Brooks had a a former drunk Confederate war hero, now Christian, show up in St. Louis who he mentored by the name of Cyrus Schofield, C.I. Schofield. And so Schofield then broke the dispensations down into what's become classic because of the influence of the Schofield Reference Bible. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, kingdom. What's good about Schofield's scheme is he breaks each one down because of a covenant that shift that takes place. And so I, I think he's got that nailed down in terms of innocence up to the time of, of um, 
of Adam's fall, and he's innocent not because he's naive, but because he's judicially not guilty. He's just not not guilty. He's innocent judicially, and that's a very good concept to hold on to. Is that he is he's innocent and he becomes guilty, and because he's legally guilty, he has to become legally justified in order to get saved. So it ties all that together. It's a very good concept. The age of conscience from Adam to Noah, the age of human government from Noah to uh, Abraham, and then the age of promise from Abraham to, to Moses. Then the age of the law, the age of grace, and then the age of the kingdom. So that just shows you some different ways that dispensationalists have broken down uh, the periodization in dispensations over the years. So how does God advance the dispensations? He does it with covenants. Now this is, looks like a lot up there, but it really isn't. You can summarize it pretty easily. First of all, I, I say it's a contract. I always think of that. I think I've drilled that into you enough by now that a covenant is a contract. When you sign on the dotted line to, to, to apply for a credit card, you have signed a covenant. You've signed a contract. And that covenant that you have with your visa company is assigning a particular uh, interest rate and certain responsibilities and also punishments that are part of that contract. When you uh, bought your house or you lease an apartment, you have a contract, and there are certain stipulations in that contract as to What's your, how long the term of the lease is or how long the term of the mortgage is, whether it's a uh, fluctuating rate mortgage or whether it's a fixed rate loan, uh, what the percentage rate is. And let's say you go out and it's, you get a 7.5% loan several years ago. And you come along and it's now you know, 2005 or 2006 and and uh, mortgage rates have dropped down to about five and a half percent. You say, "Well, I think it's—I don't think it's fair that I keep paying seven and a half percent on my uh, mortgage for my mortgage rate. I'm just going to start paying them five and a half percent. Think that'll work? No, you can't change the terms in the covenant once it's enacted. Well, you say, "Well, you know, my next door neighbor got a great deal. He got a VA loan, and his loan's only at four point eight percent. I think I'll start applying that rate to my mortgage." Will that work? No. You're reading your neighbor's mail. See, this is what people do who go to the Mosaic Law and say, I'm going to take the Mosaic Law and I need to apply that to my life. What's the problem? The Mosaic Law wasn't addressed to you. It was addressed to Israel. It's addressed to your historical next-door neighbor. And the terms of that contract are terms that are specified to be for Israel, not for you. And the same, same way that will happen in the tribulation period. What's going to happen in the tribulation period? This is the last seven years in Israel's history. And what happens if they come to Ephesians 5.18 and they walk around and say, be filled with the Spirit? What's going to happen? What? Well, reading the wrong mail again. Because the Spirit is a restrainer is going to be removed during the tribulation period. What about baptism of the Holy Spirit? The, Somebody's going to get a hold of a Pentecostal tract during the, during the tribulation period and go around saying, you all have to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Oops, you're reading the wrong mail again. See, you have to be careful with this. So it's a contract. A covenant is a contract between God, who's the party of the first part, who makes a sovereign disposition obligating himself in grace to bless man, who's the party of the second part. God is always the initiator. He's the one who sets the parameters and provides the revelation. Now, there's two covenants between God and Gentiles as a whole. There's the, actually you could say there's, I thought I revised that, three. There's the initial creation covenant of Genesis 1, 26, and 27. So we'll change that. Three covenants between God and Gentiles. Number one, the original creation covenant or Edenic Covenant, Genesis 1, 26, 27. Man's to rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the field, beasts of the, I mean, birds of the sky, beasts of the field. The Adamic Covenant then, that's the modification of that in Genesis 3, 14 to 19. The Noahic Covenant in Genesis, uh, 
Actually, it's mostly in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, but you have references to it in other verses. And then there's five covenants between God and Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian or land covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, which is stated to be between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Doesn't mention the church. Doesn't mention the church in Jeremiah 31. Doesn't mention the church in Hebrews 8. When Hebrews 8 comes along, as we'll see in a few weeks when we get there, it's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, and it begins by saying in, Je- in uh, Hebrews 8.8, 8, uh, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Didn't add with the church. Coven- the covenants don't change. It's still the, the same new covenant as you have in Jeremiah 31 to 34. Of these, what we'll see is the Mosaic Covenant was intended to be temporary and was designed to uh, end at a particular time. The The other covenants are permanent in nature. Now, going back to the original covenant, there was an Edenic responsibility given in Genesis 1. They were to be fruitful and multiply, But in Genesis 3, in the revision, there's now going to be pain in childbirth. The woman is a helper in Genesis 2. She becomes involved in this authority struggle in Genesis 3. A man's to subdue the earth in Genesis 1. Now the earth is cursed and there are thorns in Genesis 3. And Genesis 1 is to rule over the animals, but the animals are now cursed in Genesis 3. Every plant was given for food in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 3, it's restricted to the plants of the field. In Genesis 2, man is to serve and guard in the Garden of Eden, but now he is expelled after the curse. He's not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the result was that now there's spiritual death, which brings physical death. This just shows the correlation between Genesis 3 and Genesis 1. And man is still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is what's brought out in the Noahic covenant. So these three covenants are really modifications of the same contract, and God has to come in and, as it were, establish an addendum to the contract because the conditions on man's part have changed because of sin. So you have two conditional or temporary covenants, the Edenic covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. The Edenic Covenant has uh, some conditions on it because as long as they don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they can stay in the garden. The Mosaic Covenant. Secondly, there's unconditional covenants or permanent covenants. I like that term permanent more because even within some of these unconditional covenants, there's conditions on their full realization, like in the Abrahamic Covenant. Those are your two basic breakdowns. So what do we say about these covenants then? Four things, I believe. First, they're literal covenants. They must be understood literally and taken at face value. They're like literal contracts. Unlike the covenants in, quote, covenant theology, which is the Reformed branch, these are theologically extrapolated covenants. There are usually two, sometimes three covenants mentioned in covenant theology. Covenant of works, covenant of grace, and covenant of redemption. You never find that terminology anywhere in the Bible. It's extrapolated and imposed upon the text. So, But these are literal covenants, literal contracts, and they must be understood in terms of the party of the first part talking to the party of the second part. What God tells Abraham he's going to do for Abraham, he's not going to do for you. When you're 95 years old, you're not going to have a baby. No seed promise there. No land promise there. You can't go in and read somebody else's mail. You'll get in trouble. Just want to see if anybody's awake. <laughs> These permanent covenants are eternally carry the results on into eternity. There's still going to be a distinction between Israel and the church and God's plan and purpose for them on into eternity. Third, Even though we call them unconditional, 
they do contain certain conditions for fully realizing the blessings of the covenant. It doesn't mean that God's going to not bring about the final promise, but that Israel, the Jews, won't experience the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant until they accept him as their Messiah, as their deliverer. Fourth, uh, the covenants are made, the, the, the covenants with Israel are made with a covenant pe- people, which is Israel and not the church. The church is not a covenant people. And we'll get into that when we get into Hebrews 8. God never made a covenant with the church. Now, earlier dispensationalists thought that, well, there's a new covenant with Israel, so because Christ came and, what did he say right before he went to the cross? We do it, we're going to do it Sunday morning, we're going to say it. This is the new covenant of my blood. Well, isn't there, there must be a new covenant for the church. But it doesn't say that anywhere. So, hmm, what's the relationship of the church to the new covenant? And the relationship is this. Let's say I'm entering into a contract with Claude here. And I enter into this contract with Claude, and I say on the basis of this legal contract that we have, I'm going to bless everybody else in this room. But the legal basis for that blessing of everybody else in the room is this contract that he and I have. The rest of y'all aren't contract partners. That's what God did with Abraham. He said, in this Abrahamic covenant, he said, through you all people will be blessed. Well, the expansion of that blessing part is the new covenant, where God says, I'm going to, I'm going to bless, I'm going to put a new heart in Israel, not in the church, but a new heart in Israel, and all people will come and worship with Israel. So what he's doing is the same thing. He's saying, I'm going to establish a covenant with Israel on the cross. And on the basis of that contract with Israel, I'm going to be able to bring the church in and bless them in a unique way. And one of the ways that that's done is because we are in Christ, who's one of the covenant partners. It's not the party of the first, well, the second party is party of the first part. So there's no new covenant for the church, just a new covenant for Israel. And that's the basis for the future. And it's, even though it is established at the cross, it doesn't go into effect until the second coming. So we conclude with Romans 9.4. Who are Israelites, Paul still recognizes the Jews get a right to the covenant. They're Israelites, his fellow ethnic relatives. They're Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. They didn't say they're taken away, they're given to the church. They're still to Israel, Romans 9.4. So here they are. You have the Gentile covenants, the Edenic covenant, which I tend to call the creation covenant now, which ends with the fall. Then there's the Adamic covenant. That ends with the flood. And then there's the Noahic covenant. When does that go out of effect? End of, end of the uh, millennial kingdom, probably. There'll be some changes a little, little bit in the kingdom. Uh, Jewish covenants. You have the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, the land parts developed in the land or real estate or Palestinian covenant, the seed is developed in the Davidic covenant, and the blessing part is developed in the new covenant. These are all unconditional or permanent covenants. There's one conditional or temporary covenant, and that's the Mosaic covenant given in Exodus 20 to Exodus 40. So we're almost out of time. Two more quick charts. Old Testament, see, you have the blue covers the age of the Gentiles, which is subdivided into three dispensations based on your three different covenants. Then the age of Israel is, it covers two uh, eras, the dispensation of the patriarchs and the dispensation of the law. You have the Abrahamic covenant at the beginning, and then the Mosaic covenant comes in at Sinai. Then you're going to have another shift when the Messiah appears because Jesus comes along and now you're no longer believing that God's going to provide a future Messiah. What do you have to believe? That he is the Messiah. You start getting the requirements shift, the test shifts. They now are to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, new message. There's a change there. 
I'm just going to skip these verses. We'll come back to them later. Wait a minute. I added another slide, I thought. The slide that includes the church age. We lost it. Well, after the cross, you have the church age that ends with the rapture. You all have seen it before. It ends with the rapture. Then there's seven years left over for the age of Israel, which is the tribulation. That ends with the second coming of Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom. That's when the new covenant goes into effect and you have a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ at the millennial kingdom. We'll come back and wrap that up a little bit in summary next time. Father, thank you for this time to study these things and see the panorama of history as well as to understand your plans and purposes for history and to understand the significance of these dispensations uh, a little more fully. We pray that you would help us to be mindful of the fact that we live in a unique dispensation with unique assets, assets and privileges. We have a completed canon, an indwelling Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and so many uh, riches are ours in Christ that we are blessed above all people. We pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.